0: Ha <laughs> ha
1: FW in Washington and WBAI New York. I'm Chris Bangert Drowns with some brief news headlines. An Associated Press review of satellite images shows Egypt building a wall and clearing land near the border with Gaza ahead of a threatened Israeli offensive targeting the southern border city of Rafah. Egypt has not publicly acknowledged the construction, but it has warned Israel against launching an offensive in Rafah saying the possibility of forced displacement of Palestinians into Egypt could threaten a 40-year-old peace treaty with Israel. The London-based Sinai Foundation for Human Rights said the construction is for a high-security gated area meant to house refugees, quote, in the case of mass exodus. The Wall Street Journal cited anonymous Egyptian officials as saying the area could accommodate over 100,000 people. Over a million displaced Palestinians are currently crammed into Rafah, where authorities say the humanitarian situation is dire. Five patients in southern Gaza's Nasser Hospital died today for lack of oxygen, following an Israeli raid on the medical complex yesterday. Earlier bombardment on the hospital killed another patient. Israeli troops were searching the complex for what they said were possible remains of hostages held by Hamas. The Gaza Health Ministry said those troops ordered hundreds of staff, patients, and relatives into an older building that wasn't equipped to treat patients, and that six ICU patients were left unattended, along with three infants in incubators. The five patients who died from a lack of oxygen were among those left alone in the ICU. Separately, two Israeli airstrikes overnight on the city of Rafah killed at least 13 people, including nine members of the same family. Israel has been blocking a U.S.-funded shipment of flour into Gaza for days, despite a personal promise from Prime Minister Netanyahu to President Biden several weeks ago to deliver the aid. An Israeli minister is blocking the flour shipment because the recipient is the UN Relief and Works Agency. That agency, known as UNRWA, was accused by Israel of employing a handful of people alleged to have engaged in acts of terror against Israel. The U.S. and several allies paused funding to UNRWA in response to the accusation, but the U.S. has publicly stressed the importance of the agency's humanitarian work and has signaled a desire to resume funding following an internal investigation by UNRWA. In public statements, Biden administration officials have said it is imperative for Israel to follow through on its promise and deliver the flower shipment, which could feed more than 1.5 million Palestinians. In domestic news, in a major setback for the impeachment inquiry of Joe Biden being carried out by House Republicans, the Justice Department charged a former FBI informant with lying about the president and his son Hunter Biden's involvement in business dealings with a Ukrainian energy company. In a 37-page indictment unsealed yesterday, Alexander Smirnov is accused of falsely telling the FBI that Burisma Holdings paid Joe Biden and his son bribes worth $5 million each, while Joe Biden was vice president. Smirnov was arrested in Las Vegas and faces a maximum jail term of 25 years if convicted. Smirnov's motive appears to be political. The indictment notes that in May 2020, Smirnov sent his handler a series of messages expressing bias against Biden, who was the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee at the time. And in local news, the D.C. area is likely to see significant snowfall overnight, and the National Weather Service has issued a winter weather advisory for most of the region. A winter storm warning was posted for western portions of Maryland and Virginia the rate of snowfall could reach as high as 2 inches per hour in the very early hours of the morning. Weather in Washington, D.C. right now is 45 degrees and mostly cloudy. In New York City, 40 degrees with fair skies. For WPFW in Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Thanks for listening.
2: Bienvenidos a todo mi gente escuchando in Washington and all points beyond. This is Oscar Fernandez, and you're listening to Latino Media Collective here on WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington. District of Colombia, here on this Friday, February 16, 2024. We're also heard on latinomediacollective.com. You can find us on Twitter under the name at LMC underscore show. That is at LMC underscore show. And of course, live on WPFWFM.org. That's WPFWFM.org. Once again, this is Oscar Fernandez, and we are in the middle of WPFW's Winter Place Drive, which gives you, the audience, the opportunity to support the LMC by going to WPFWFM.org to make a donation. You can also call 1-800-222-9739, and if you have the Cash App on your phone, you can make a donation to dollar sign $WPFW and give credit to the Latino Media Collective when you do so. So our goal at this hour is $500 and I want to take this opportunity before we continue to say thank you to all the people who supported us on last week's show. We got some good momentum going on and we hope to continue that with today's show because one of the reasons to support independent journalism during this time is not only as a means to sustain WPFW, but also as an expression by the audience as a whole about the importance of independent journalism as a form of education. For example, today's show will focus on El Salvador after this month's presidential elections, which led to the re-election of Nayib Bukele. His re-election is problematic because of its illegality under the Salvadoran constitution and because of the ongoing state of exception that has resulted in 1%, 1% of the population to be arrested without due process. Now, why should it matter to the WPFW audience about the political situations like these in El Salvador? Well, considering the Central American community that has existed in the Washington area for almost four, four and a half decades now, authoritarian figures like Bukele with heavy-handed approaches to law enforcement to the detriment of human rights are precisely, precisely the sort of things that lead people to migrate. And our guest today can further crystallize how a Bukele-like figure can mutate to other parts of Latin America as well. So we're joined today, once again, by Jorge Cuellar, who's an assistant professor of Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean studies at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. Welcome back to the show, Jorge Cuellar.
3: Thanks, Oscar, for having me again on the show. I'm really excited to talk about this and to support, you know, during during the pledge drive, the question of of El Salvador continues to room extremely large, right, in hemispheric politics. And not only is it important for the region, but I think it's important for folks in the United States that are seeking to understand what's happening in Central America, a region that's always been clouded with suspicion and dubiousness. And so, you know, the importance of getting the story correct around this election and around, you know, politics in the region more broadly is is crucial to understanding what's going on.
2: Absolutely. We're going to expand beyond just El Salvador momentarily. But let's just get to the million-dollar question here, which is your general thoughts about the election results and if you can explain how Nayib Bukele ran for re-election when the Salvadoran constitution clearly forbids it because this story, you know, doesn't just isolate itself to this year. There has been a series of events over the last few years during the Bukele administration that has led us to what is essentially an unconstitutional illegal election result. Can you expand and crystallize what we're talking about here?
3: Yeah, so I mean, what are my general thoughts on the election? Well, the election is not over, right? It's still, it's, the votes are still being counted. There's been so many irregularities with the process that it's technically not over. Yet Bukele himself declared victory only two hours after polls closed on Sunday, February 4th. But the reason why Bukele is even allowed or has allowed himself to run in this election is because there's been a very concerted reinterpretation of the Salvadoran Constitution and very specific articles in the Constitution that prohibit presidential elections to one term. Right, you could actually be president multiple times, but you can't be president consecutively. Right, and that's that reinterpretation that this government did after they fired, you know, long-standing and reputable constitutional court judges that are these folks who interpret the Salvadorian constitution, right, and present arguments and limitations around constitutional limits. And so he fired these people and put in folks that were more amenable to this reinterpretation around re-election, right, where he specifically wanted to run, but wasn't allowed to because of those limitations. And so by changing, you know, the folks within this chamber of government, right, this constitutional court, he was allowed to run again, but only under the qualifying act that he stepped down six months before re-election, right? And so then, in this interim period, he wasn't necessarily the president of El Salvador, even though actually, in fact, he was. But he put in a secretary, I believe, that was part of his government as uh, acting president for this moment, right? And so he needed to do this, and he needed to step down and step away from uh, the president's office in order to be able to run again. So it was a kind of, I don't know how I would put it, a loophole basically that they found and exploited that would allow for him to stand again in the 2024 election, although this had never been done before, right? In terms of the post-war after 1992 in El Salvador, this is the first time Salvadorans have ever experienced anything like this, right? Because there's always been political alternates. There's always been whether it was Arena, FMLN, Ghana, right? Yeah. Which is Naive's party at that point in in twenty um in twenty six in twenty nineteen, sorry. You know, this has never happened before. But this is very, very much a kind of engineered right thing that by dismissing the constitutional court judges and reinterpreting the constitution to allow for this loophole, right? He was banking on his popularity. He was banking on You know, the Legislative Assembly not dissenting in any kind of way because it was stacked with and it still continues to be stacked by Nuevas Ideas loyalists, right, of of, of his party, new ideas. And so he set it up in such a way that there was going to be nobody who was going to speak out, right, within, you know, the institutions of government against his reelection, although it was perceived from both by investigative journalists, by human rights, watchdogs, by international organizations by groups like the Organization of American States, right? All these folks called it out as this is illegal, this is unconstitutional, this is not what the Salvadoran Constitution allows for. In fact, there were these safeguards built in, right, after 1992 in the peace accords that set up this kind of new quote-unquote democratic panorama in the country that prohibited precisely this because of this fear of democratic backsliding, this fear of returning back to dictatorship, Right. And this fear of democratic erosion that would allow for basically strongman rule.
2: Precisely. And on top of all this, it's all happening under the state of exception, which is now going to enter its second full year next month. Now, the state of exception, many human rights organizations have pointed out that it's led to the arrest of at least 76,000 people without any due process, almost one percent of the Salvadoran population. And just to give the American audience an idea of what kind of number that is, relatively speaking, El Salvador is a country of 7 million people. If a state of exception were to be applied with a population the size of the United States, you would be talking about at least 6 million people arrested, in prison, with no due process, with no access to lawyers. And this is the state in which El Salvador has been in. And this is what many Salvadoran guests have said in the show Numerous times independent of one another about how it is becoming a backsliding democracy, El Salvador. And now with his re-election, with what is essentially another five years of the Nayib Bukele presidency, it's interesting to see what's going to happen next because obviously... One of the things that's central to his popularity is the decline in in violent crime, you know, from gangs, from gang activity in El Salvador. It's essentially one of the most well-known things that El Salvador has become known for, unfortunately, in the last few years. But if we were to take the issue of gang violence out of the picture here, and I think you mentioned this in your article with Alfaro, like, what else has he really accomplished in terms of employment, in terms of the economy in terms of developing the country and its infrastructure? Because the truth is, and you said this, I'm paraphrasing you, that it's, apart from the gang violence, you know, it's really a bunch of broken promises underneath all of that, correct?
3: Yeah, no, I think that, I mean, that's a that's a great summarization of, of what I wrote and also what's been happening in El Salvador in terms of, yeah, it is a bunch of broken promises, right? This guy comes into the country, said, I'm going to clean it up. I'm going to make El Salvador great again, right? He comes with this kind of yeah. approach to really remaking Salvadoran politics and Salvadoran culture and improving infrastructure and creating new revenue streams for ordinary Salvadorans, right? He's also, he's also selling a vision to the United States as well that he's going to stem migration, right? And that then the people aren't going to be showing up at the U.S.-Mexico border, you know, and bothering U.S. politicians, right? So it's this kind of, all-encompassing transformation that Bukele has really articulated and sold people on but what we see right beyond this question of the gangs which as you correctly mentioned has been you know multi-generational problem at this point and one of the most visible things that El Salvador is famous for right it's no longer pupusas and the beaches it's the gangs right this is our the way the Salvadorans are primarily understood and so by getting rid of the gangs, which he, you know, it's, it's still questionable whether or not he fully has done so, right? And I'll get into the specific there in a second, but he basically displaced all the gangs that were in across, you know, El Salvador into a mega prison, right? And that mega prison, terrorism, confinement center, as well as the already existing prisons like Isalco, Mariona, Penalitos, all over the place, right? So there's- Sacatecoluco a.k.a. sacatras right? So there's, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's already kind of a mass incarceration infrastructure in El Salvador that he's been actually just filling in. And he's expanded, right, with the terrorism confinement center. What's undeniable, right, is that people have experienced a sense of safety, right? Just when I was in El Salvador, and I think I mentioned it in that El Faro piece, is that people say we are breathing tranquility again, right? We haven't had a breath of tranquility in such a long time. And so you can't discount that The gang problem has diminished such that people are feeling a sense of safety once again. And that's really, really important. And that's, in fact, why many Salvadorans went to the ballot box to vote for this guy, right? Because they felt assured that he was the only one that was able to, you know, force his will upon gangs and get rid of them from, you know, their neighborhood, their canton, the street, etc. Right. And so this is what a lot of people voted on. What they didn't see, and, and it's actually quite interesting. And I'm going to just say this really quickly. What's also quite interesting is that in the lead up up to election, there were so many ads about if you vote for the other guy, the gangs are going to get out of prison. And they would show the tattooed guys, right? This kind of fear-mongering imagery that if you vote for the other guy, the gangs are going to get out and, you know, vaya con Dios, God bless you. I hope you survive. This is the sort of fear-mongering and you know, stoking of anxiety that this political campaign was pushing for really, really hard. And so a lot of people voted on that question of security, which is okay, makes perfect sense. But what you don't see, right, what you don't see are these other failed promises. Most of the things that the government has accentuated and made visible as like its various feats and accomplishments have been very, very few and far between. So things like, for example, Surf City, right, which is basically, you know, a series of restaurants and a couple of buildings that were primarily designed for tourism, right, international tourism and for an international surf competition. That's far and gone now. And these buildings remain very expensive to eat at. Only primarily international tourists will consume there. And so these are the kinds of things that he's done. He's also cleared up the downtown, right, the historic core, which has actually displaced many street vendors, right, that have, I don't know where they are now. Some of them are formalized, right, in in this new parking structure that he's redesigned as a market called the hula hula market. But what about the rest of them? So there's been all these attempts at saying that El Salvador is different now because the gangs are gone. But really the same problems are pretty much still there. Inequality is still there. Violence against women is still there. Migration is still there. Attacks and intimidations on environmental defenders is still there. But all the same problems are still there. And none of those things, right, have been addressed at all by this government. And there's actually, you know, I want to go back to this one video that went viral on the eve of the election, where a street vendor woman, a young woman says that, you know, what this government has really been doing is really just painting over poverty, right? And that phrase is exactly what this government has been doing. It's been painting over poverty. And it's so sharp and so analytically clear that this government is pretty much just manicuring things and then selling them off as if it's you know this revolution in Salvadoran society and it's
2: not see i i told everyone that you're the best person to crystallize what we're discussing here painting over poverty that should be the snapshot of Bukele's presidency his first term and there's nothing out there that would lead anyone to believe that the second term isn't going to be any different so you mentioned you know some of the things that we don't see with regards to El Salvador's backsliding democracy. The other thing we don't see is the other people who have had a role in the backsliding of democracy in El Salvador. So obviously, because Bukele the individual takes up all the oxygen when it comes to the narrative of El Salvador and the undemocratic things that have taken place in recent years, one name that goes under the radar is the vice president of El Salvador, Felix Ulloa. So, in fact, it's forgotten that both Bukele and Uyua speak English and don't seem to have any problem in boasting about the rights denied through the state of exception. So, for example, here is an interview of Felix Uyua in English and sort of his interpretation of the state of exception. So, here's the clip. State of exception is not, is not a, a siège.
4: It is something that never affect has never affected in the past, neither is affecting now. The public liberty, you have the right, the free speech, uh, free gathering, free assembly, uh, whatever. We have had different international events like the Miss Universe, uh, like the Central America and the Caribbean Games, which brought more than five thousand athletes and their teams. And they were running around all of the all of the country. There is no restriction to any public liberty. Bottom line, the state of exception affect just two guarantees. But those guarantees are not public; are individuals. That means that this the, the bad guy who was caught by the police who cannot apply to say, "I am being detained for seventy hours." No, you can. St- Right.
2: 8, hold them and hold and, on. Yeah, that's it. And do so do that that's the right. state of exception. So that was Felix Uyoa talking about how the state of exception does not, in his words, does not affect Salvadoran society. And along the way, sort of boasting and bragging about both the Miss Universe pageant and the Pan-Caribbean games that took place in El Salvador just quite recently. In addition to that, it's interesting that we play that because that was part of an interview that he took in the United States in Nevada last month, sort of this campaign of trying to encourage Salvadorans in the U.S. to vote in the elections in El Salvador, you know, abroad. And in addition to that, he had an interview with the AP last month doing the rounds with American media. And, you know, he said something to the effect of, rights that are being suspended, you know, he tried to clarify, tried to clarify that they didn't affect, quote, honorable Salvadorans. And this sort of ruffled my feathers the wrong way because that's sort of Roberto Dobison type of talk, you know what I'm saying? And so, well, obviously, you know, the focus has been on Nayib Bukele. How would you measure Uyoa's influence behind the scenes, not just Uyoa, but also other people that sort of fly under the radar? With regards to the Ideas party.
3: Felix Ulloa is such an interesting character, not only because he's basically the kind of international representative of the Bukele administration, right? But also because he's been around Salvadoran politics for quite some time, right? He went to the University of Central America. He was at one point a leftist in El Salvador, right? So he has a sort of some kind of credentials that allow him to, you know, sort of speak authoritatively on some of these things even though what he's been peddling ever since he joined up with Nayib Bukele back in, you know, 2018, 2019, was that, you know, he sees that democratic backsliding or what we call democratic backsliding is to him, right, a necessity in order to have efficient government. And that's what he really pushes out there. And you see it in the interviews that he's given to the international press, right? That then when it gets sort of put into context, you know, the Nueva Cidades people, including Bukele and Nuyoa, We'll get really flustered over. We'll get really mad about. And then they'll start to say, oh, the international press is out to get us. You know, this is fake news. They took our words out of context. Right. So it's this weird way that when they're caught saying what they actually believe. Right. Which is democracy gets in the way of what we are considering good government. When they get caught saying that and then it comes out in the press, then they get really, really mad about that. But people like Ulloa, you know, they're instrumental in making sure that the Salvadoran diaspora, especially in the United States, you know, knows the the Bukele platform, knows that Bukele cares about them, knows that Bukele wants them to vote. It's this kind of thing, right? It goes with the full court press that this government has done on social media, that is all in this kind of the building out of the consulates and the kinds of services that that offer Salvadorans, right? And these campaigns of getting out the vote. Ulloa is instrumental to that. He's a figurehead to that because Bukele doesn't leave the country, right? So it's him. It's him. He's the one who goes to the evangelical churches to talk to prospective Salvadoran voters. He's the one who goes to, to does the press rounds in order to communicate that Bukele is not so bad. And he's not an authoritarian. He's actually building a great democracy, right? So he's the one who's doing this sort of ideological work in the popular press and getting people to see Bukele as actually doing good work. But wait... It gets worse.
2: In that same interview with the Associated Press last month, Uyoa actually said something to the effect that in some cases, officials may have asked security forces to meet quotas of detentions, arresting a predetermined number of people, but that it was, quote, not an order from executives nor a government policy, sort of contradicting what he said initially, that it's coming from officials, government officials, predetermined quotas so this is another component about the state of exception that people don't take into account and precisely precisely like I said at the beginning the type of reasons that people migrate to the United States and let's be clear once again this is not exclusive to El Salvador you know this is something that other Latin American countries may try to replicate or have already replicated in its history and so this is precisely why we have guests like Jorge Cuellar on the show to bring not only his voices like his to light, but also to address these stories. And it's especially important in the Washington area because these are sort of things oftentimes history has shown supported by the U.S., whether politically or economically, that leads people to migrate and which has developed the Central American community in the Washington area that we know today. And these are precisely the type of stories that we love to bring here on the Latino Media Collective. And it's only possible with your support by supporting the Latino Media Collective at this hour. We have a goal at this hour of $500, but it's only possible with your support if you go to WPFWFM.org to make a donation. You can also call 1-800-222-9739. And if you have the cash app on your phone, make a donation to dollar sign WPFW. And please give credit to the Latino Media Collective when you do so. Because if you think about it, it would seem odd for the president of another country, let alone the vice president, to make the rounds in American corporate media to win an election that all prognostications would show that it was going to be a landslide victory. Myself nor Jorge are denying you know, the, the results in that manner, but the illegality surrounding it is another issue in and of itself. But they do that because they know that they have a friendly place in corporate media to do so in the first place. And again, this is where independent media steps in to show that, hey, this is not a PR organization, WPFW, nor the Pacifica Network, to allow that sort of contradiction like what I read from the AP with regards to Felix Olloa's own comments. His own comments, like I said before, contradict himself from one paragraph to the next. And we have no pushback, but that's the nature of corporate media. Independent media is a whole other thing altogether, which is why it's so important that you support us at this hour. So again, the number to call is one 800 9739 You can make a donation to WPFWFM.org. And if you add the cash app on your phone, make a donation to dollar sign WPFW and give credit to the Latino Media Collective. If you want to continue to hear fantastic voices like that of Jorge Cuellar. So usually we'll take a music break at this time, but because we have so much to discuss with Jorge, you know, I just want to continue this conversation with him. But again, it's only possible with your support if you want to hear more fantastic voices like Jorge. We've had him on the show several times. One of the best shows that we did was about a year and a half ago, actually a two-part episode with regards to the shadow of Roberto Dobison, which is in reference to Roberto Dobison, the former... Salvadoran Assemblyman in the 1980s, the founder of the right-wing arena party in El Salvador, and by and large, the godfather of the death squads in El Salvador during that time period in the 1980s. And one of the things that we discussed in that previous episode was sort of the parallels between Bukele and Roberto Dovizón. Now, Roberto Dovizón never became president of El Salvador. He tried, but if he were to have been the president of El Salvador during the 1980s, he would be not only more well known with regards to Latin American history, but we would put him up there in the Mount Rushmore of fascist US supported dictatorships like that of uh, <laughs> Pinochet in Chile, Videla in Argentina, Rios Montt in Guatemala. More about him in a second, so on and so forth. But again, to bring those stories to light and to understand how the Salvadoran diaspora developed in the U.S. in a manner in which it did, you need to support independent journalist outlets like WPFW. So, Jorge, I want to ask you, I actually want to turn our attention right now to Guatemala because, as you know, they had a presidential election last year. And during Guatemala's presidential elections last year, one of the right-wing candidates was Zuri Rios, the daughter of former Guatemalan dictator Efren Ríos Montt. She, along with other candidates, eventually lost to the progressive candidate Bernardo Arrevalo, despite attempts by the Guatemalan elite to derail his victory and even his inauguration. But during the campaign trail last year, Ríos promoted the idea of replicating the quote-unquote Bukele model for Guatemala if she had won. With that in mind, we have to take a closer look at who are some of Ukele's admirers in not only in Latin America, but in the U.S. as well. So we have a clip from Eric Prince, who is an American mercenary, the founder of the mercenary group Blackwater and, you know, basically a a Christianized fascist. And he's also the brother of former education secretary Betsy DeVos as well. He also expressed his admiration for Bukele. So let's take a listen.
0: All this talk of illegal migration in Europe, in the United States, it ultimately comes down to a contest of what is governance, who is govern- which countries are governed well. And if so many of these countries around the world are incapable of governing themselves, then, then it's time for us to just, put, to, just to, to put the imperial hat back on to say, we're gonna govern those countries if you're incapable of governing yourselves because enough is enough. We're done being invaded. Because our own national security risk is stake. Exactly. National security interests are at stake. You can say that about pretty much all of Africa. They're incapable of governing themselves and benefiting their citizens because the governments there are all about looting and pillaging and lining their pockets and going shopping in Paris instead of actually right, making on a their second. country hold on. better People on the land. left are gonna watch this. They're gonna say, Wait a minute, Eric Prince is talking about being a colonialist again. Absolutely. Yes, enough. Because if you go to these countries and you see how they suffer under absolutely corrupt, made-up governments that are just criminal syndicates, the people of Africa, the people of Latin America, a lot of them deserve better. Now, some countries are really getting it together. Look at what El Salvador did. Bukele murder capital of, of 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 latin america he said no more now el salvador is safer than prince william county and he took just all south the, of washington dc he put all, all the, the MS drug 13 cartel guys in prison in prison ecuador about to do the same thing
2: so that's a clip of eric prince talking about how one he wants to recolonize africa which is insane in and of itself but also express his love and admiration to the uh, Bukele administration, to Nae Bukele, the individual for, quote unquote, doing it right in El Salvador. And he wants to see that Bukele model that I just mentioned to be replicated in Ecuador. And like I just said a second ago, you know, Zuri Rios last year was promoting the Bukele model in Guatemala as well. He also wants to be a, a colonist, you know, shows you what kind of person Eric Prince is. But again, this shows not only that, like I said before earlier, that this Bukele model or Nayib Bukele himself extends beyond El Salvador. So, what are your thoughts on this "quote-unquote" Bukele model that right wingers seem to be admiring and want to replicate, which is even more scary?
3: Yeah, I mean that's a that's a pretty scary clip, and it's and it's funny because you know when the elections were happening in El Salvador. The New York Times piece came out with Uyoa's interview as well, right? Because it was all over the press. And it was so funny because I said, he's saying the quiet part out loud. That was my tweet. And it's precisely this, right? Like somebody like Eric Prince is saying the quiet part out loud. Many of these, you know, right wing, you know, uh, fascists have been doing these kinds of activities for such a long time in Latin America. But it's only now that they're sort of emboldened to say these things out loud. So, I mean, one could say that, you know, the military buildup and the police buildup throughout Central America and Latin America is part of Eric Prince's approach to taming the global south. It's already been happening. He's just articulating it in such a way that just seems so brash and so arrogant. Right. And we've never heard this before. But, you know, if we look back into the history with like Dabuson and, and people like this, they were saying it in quite the same way. Right. But in terms of in terms of. This kind of a, a approach of applauding the Bukele government for taming the savage gangs, putting the monster away, right? It's funny, in Latin America, much of the politics has actually been around crime and punitivism, right? It's always been a, a decision for, for voters, like, who's the toughest on crime? Right? Who's the toughest on crime? And Zuri Rios is precisely one of these figures that, like, is trying to sell herself as being the toughest on crime. Because that's what's going to move the vote right? That's what's going to garner the vote. And so now when you have a living, breathing model of this next door in El Salvador, right, who actually succeeded in putting away the gangs, this kind of plague on Central American society, then oh my God, of course you're going to cite it in your political campaigns because it's the one that's going to garner you the votes, right? Not only is Bukele's image and his politics transnational at this point, because people are Consuming political advertisements and memes and tweets, right, from all over Central and Latin America and the Caribbean. But now to cite Bukele is actually to demonstrate that you are an effective leader and that you will do whatever it takes, right, to get rid of these, what are perceived to be endemic social problems, right? Endemic, endemic criminality. And so it makes perfect sense that these right wingers will be like, oh my God, there's an incredible model right next door. This is homegrown governance. Why not take it on? You saw it already with Xiomara Castro in Honduras that actually has implemented, right, a state of exception of her own with variable effect. But nonetheless, it's like there's a way that there's a kind of copycat politics happening, right? There's a sort of copycat politics in the sense that, look, oh, if this guy's doing it. I need to at least do that, if not more, right? And so this is why you have Daniel Novoa, state of exception too, right, over in Ecuador. That's why you have the DR in Haiti also thinking about gang control, right? And ways to get rid of gangs by looking at the El Salvador Bukele approach. And so there's all these ways that the publicity around Nayib Bukele's successes as a authoritarian leader of El Salvador is doing the rounds. And it's like, it's reaching people in countries that otherwise would not care what's happening in El Salvador, right? This little corner of Central America. And so this is why there's so many people who are Who are very much like enamored with Bukele and saying, We want a Bukele. You know, if a politician now, right, that's running in 2024 needs to, in some way, shape, or form, pay lip service to something Bukelean, right? Something Bukelean, whether it's the state of (laughs) exception, whether it's the way that they dealt with the pandemic, whether it's the way that he's sort of, you know, made it into a one party state and the way that he's mobilized people to overwhelmingly support him, both inside of the country and outside, right? There's so many lessons to be learned politically from Bukele that is being gleaned by other political leadership and even security firms, right? And different groups throughout Latin America. So it's not, just, it's not just a state of exception, but it's sort of the bundle of things that Bukele is that is very enticing to political leadership across the region that is out of ideas, that is simply out of ideas, right? So Bukele looks like, oh my God, this is an incredible sort of revolution in right-wing populism but it's actually a return to very old, old things. Yes,
2: exactly. And so I'm glad that you mentioned that component in the end because the AP interviewed Guatemalan political scientists with regards to sort of this, like I said before replication, attempted replication of the Bukele model and they spoke to one Guatemalan professor that sort of just brought it down to this, is that you know, one of the reasons that politicians in Guatemala want to replicate the Bukele model is just because of Guatemala's own strain of authoritarianism and partly because they lack their own proposals. And like you said earlier, is that, you know, if we were to put the gang violence aside, that there's a series of broken promises both socially, economically, infrastructure-wise, you name it. And I want to tell you this, Jorge, because there's another thing that's problematic of that Eric Prince clip that goes beyond El Salvador. It's the fact that over the years, Eric Prince is known mainly for this mercenary work with his organization, Blackwater, in places like Afghanistan and various parts of Africa as well. And what's problematic to me and what gets under my skin is that over the years, he's been given a platform in corporate media, in places like CNN, MSNBC, ABC News, you name it. And I don't think they challenge people like Eric Prince as often as they should. That clip that we just played with regards to his boasting of wanting to be a a colonialist on Africa is not only shocking, but it should be infuriating that all these years that corporate media gave him a platform, and yet people like Jorge Cuellar, And we got to give a shout out to Ana P. Rodriguez, who's another fantastic Salvadoran professor. Who was also on the show late last year to discuss the uh, horrendous Miss Universe pageant in El Salvador. These are the kind of voices that don't appear on corporate media. But shockingly, those of Eric Prince give as much platform time as they want to spew whatever lies or shocking comments like the one that we played here on the show today. And this is why we need to support independent media outlets like WPFW. So again, our goal at this hour is $500. And there's a lot of work that needs to be put into bringing fantastic voices like Jorge and Ana P. Rodriguez on the show. But it's only possible with your support and it's also a counter against precisely the kind of voices like Eric Prince that get a free platform in corporate media way too many times, way too often. And considering what we just heard here, chances are, one way or another, he's going to appear in corporate media again for another reason or for a different subject matter altogether. So again, make the call to 1-800-222-9739. You can make a donation online to WPFWFM.org. And if you have the cash app on your phone, make a donation to dollar sign WPFW and get credit to the Latino Media Collective when you do so. So... One of the reasons I wanted to have Jorge on as well, in addition to everything we discussed, one of the reasons we had him on the show was because his article was featured in El Faro, a news website originally based in El Salvador, which has since moved to Costa Rica because of harassment it has received by the Bukele administration. This follows revelations in 2021 that the organization was being spied on by the Bukele government via the NSO group, the organization that runs the spyware Pegasus. Since we are in the middle of WPFW's place drive, right, Jorge, can you tell us about the independence of independent journalism, especially <laughs> when you think of it, especially when it would be unlikely that you and I would be able to have this conversation in El Salvador today? You know, we could probably, but then considering everything that we mentioned about the state of exemption, we run the risk of being one of those 76,000 plus people who have been arrested without due process, and without charge as well.
3: Yeah, Oscar, you know that. That's the question of the day. You know, like, one of the things that we, you know, we've already talked about how the state apparatus has its own way of doing things and making visible its policies and, you know, spreading them throughout the world, whether it be through corporate media or whether it goes through, you know, social media as well. I just remember very early on some of the first few interviews that Bukele gave to the world when everybody was like, wait, who is this guy? were to somebody like Tucker Carlson, right? Another, oh, you know, yeah. sort of figure within the right-wing press, right? A really a, a kind of loony guy, but gave Bukele this platform, right? To signal to a certain segment of the American population who he was. And so one of the things that investigative journalism has done in El Salvador, you know, as a kind of flip side, is actually tell us like what's happening on the ground. In moments where like there's been a clampdown on the access to... The political sphere in El Salvador to reporting on what's happening behind closed doors in the prisons, for example, or in backdoor dealings between the government and gangs, right? Which is another thing that organizations like El Faro have been pivotal, you know, in bringing to light. They um, were the first to
2: break that story, actually.
3: They were the first to break that story, and they continue to do that for every administration, every Salvadorian administration. El Faro have been the ones who have exposed. Right, those dealings between the state and gangs, right? And we can talk about the pros and cons of all of that. But nonetheless, they've been doing that investigative work, right, of bringing those issues to light in ways that have not been reported by the Associated Press and the other newswires. Even though those are those are very useful, right, as well. But there's something really special, right, and peculiar, and particular, and specific, and on the ground that El Faro and organizations like it, like Revista Factum, Mala Hierba, Revista Brujula, right? In Honduras, we got Contra Corriente, right? All these other, org- these kind of independent journalist organizations that are doing the kind of grunt labor of bringing these facts to the surface, right? And so my hat's off to them. And that's precisely the reason why I chose to, you know, write that op-ed for El Faro, right? Because I know El Faro is a thorn in the side of this government that is attempting to really control all of the narratives, not just control the narrative, control all the narratives, right? And so El Faro is one of the few, right, that is really doing that that important work of of bringing those things to light. And so, you know, as you mentioned, they've been consistently under attack, like many of their journalists are actually not even in El Salvador any longer. They're in Guatemala, right? There's some people in Mexico, there's people in Costa Rica, like you mentioned, right? right, in order to do the work, you know, they've been forcibly displaced, right, journalists have been forcibly displaced, Precisely. you know, in order to do this work and to continue being kind of democratic watchdogs on this government's consolidation of authoritarian power. And so it's like, that's the only thing left in many cases, right, when we look at the way that this government has concentrated all branches of government, right, into the figure of Naib Bukele, you know, our messiah, El Faro is one of the few that are left, that are telling another story. They're the fourth branch of government, right? You know, one could say that are still, you know, able to make critique, are able to ask the right questions, are able to expose the dealings of this government that doesn't want those things to come to light. And so it's really important for me that El Faro is still around, that El Faro is still supported. And that for me, like I will, I'll continue to publish in that space because to me, It's one of the few places that still bridges, right, not only a critical conversation, but speaks to Salvadorans in the country and speaks to Salvadorans in the diaspora. And so, and I think the problem of Nayib Bukele and the way that he sort of monopolized the conversation is because he moves between those two spaces. And El Faro is also in that space as well, but represents more of the critical current, right? And the folks that do all the kind of base level work that then other, you know, investigations rely upon. Right. Or that scholars like myself rely upon or that organizations that do democratic watchdog work are also relying on the reports. So there's a way that El Faro and organizations like it are at the center of a critical public that is so so necessary in these times where information is so difficult, like reliable information is so difficult to come by. Right. We'll only hear what Bukele wants us to hear. Miss Universe went great. Lionel Messi was in El Salvador, right? We'll only hear about those things, but we won't actually hear, yeah. <laughs> right, about these other things that are happening on the ground, whether it's deaths because of the ridiculously poor conditions in the prisons, right? Or the amount of people that you mentioned, right, that have been arbitrarily detained and the lack of due process and the fact that there's social movements now growing in number of mothers that are looking for more information about their missing loved ones, Right. Like, that migration hasn't lessened at all. Like, these are the kinds of big issues that organizations like El Faro are consistently following up on. Those are El Faro's beats, so to speak, that the general press in El Salvador and the international press that's more kind of corporate-leaning will not pay attention to. Those are narratives that are simply too complex. They're too hot-button, too deep in some ways, right? Too messy. And so this is where El Faro does its best work. And so for me, like... Publishing with El Faro is not only, to me, really important, but it's precisely a kind of pushing in that direction, right? Pushing for the free press, pushing for independent organizations to be able to continue working in a place like El Salvador, where that's becoming increasingly difficult to do.
2: You know, over the years, the Latino Media Collective has had the pleasure of speaking with reporters on the show from El Faro, like José Luis Sanz and Nelson Rauda, on a variety of issues with regards to El Salvador, And I don't put them on just because I'm Salvador myself, but because of the sense of urgency in giving a platform to independent journalists, especially when even years before Bukele came into office, you know, they challenged power, El Faro, no matter who was in charge of the country. And unfortunately, it's gotten worse under the Bukele administration, especially when you consider the true forms and the use of social media to defend Bukele this show has been trolled by Bukele supporters in the past as well, so I want to wave hi to them as well if they can hear me and see me. But this is precisely the importance of supporting independent media outlets like WPFW because, like I said before with the issue with Eric Prince, WPFW can really expose corporate media sometimes on how they don't do their homework on certain issues. And with the case of El Salvador, it's no different. So, Again, this is why we encourage everyone to go to the phone to 1-800-222-9739 or go to WPFWFN.org to support the Latino Media Collective at this hour. And if you have the Cash App on your phone, make a donation to dollar sign $WPFW and give credit to the Latino Media Collective when you do so. So we are out of time. We've been speaking with Jorge Cuellar, who's an assistant professor of Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean studies at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire, and you can rest assured that further on down the road, we're going to have him back on the show again. But in the meantime, Jorge Cuellar, thank you very much for being on the show with us.
3: Thanks so much, Oscar. This has been great as always. And, you know, I just want to say again that public media and independent media is one of the only remaining counterweights to democratic backsliding, especially in Central America. And it's strange to me that these governments think that the press is public enemy number one. And we need to sort of really think critically about why that is and why they think that the press are their enemy. They clearly got some dirty laundry that don't want to be exposed, (laughs) you know? And so that, to me, is another one of the reasons why we need to continue to support independent investigative work.
2: Thank you very much. I couldn't have put it better myself. And with that said, that is it for today's show. We want to say thank you to everyone who supported the Latino Media Collective during this hour. We hope to continue that support. want to say thank you for everyone for listening to the show. Make sure you listen to latinomediacollective.com and follow us on Twitter under the name at LMC underscore show as well. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening. That's it for today's show. Adios. Nos vemos. Chao.
1: PFW in Washington and WBAI New York. I'm Chris Bangert Drowns with some brief news headlines. An Associated Press review of satellite images shows Egypt building a wall and clearing land near the border with Gaza ahead of a threatened Israeli offensive targeting the southern border city of Rafah. Egypt has not publicly acknowledged the construction, but it has warned Israel against launching an offensive in Rafah saying the possibility of forced displacement of Palestinians into Egypt could threaten a 40-year-old peace treaty with Israel. The London-based Sinai Foundation for Human Rights said the construction is for a high-security gated area meant to house refugees, quote, in the case of mass exodus. The Wall Street Journal cited anonymous Egyptian officials as saying the area could accommodate over 100,000 people. Over a million displaced Palestinians are currently crammed into Rafah where authorities say the humanitarian situation is dire. Five patients in southern Gaza's Nasser hospital died today for lack of oxygen following an Israeli raid on the medical complex yesterday. Earlier bombardment on the hospital killed another patient. Israeli troops were searching the complex for what they said were possible remains of hostages held by Hamas. The Gaza Health Ministry said those troops ordered hundreds of staff, patients, and relatives into an older building that wasn't equipped to treat patients, and that six ICU patients were left unattended, along with three infants in incubators. The five patients who died from a lack of oxygen were among those left alone in the ICU. Separately, two Israeli airstrikes overnight on the city of Rafah killed at least 13 people, including nine members of the same family. Israel has been blocking a U.S.-funded shipment of flour into Gaza for days, despite a personal promise from Prime Minister Netanyahu to President Biden several weeks ago to deliver the aid. An Israeli minister is blocking the flour shipment because the recipient is the UN Relief and Works Agency. That agency, known as UNRWA, was accused by Israel of employing a handful of people alleged to have engaged in acts of terror against Israel. The U.S. and several allies paused funding to UNRWA in response to the accusation, but the U.S. has publicly stressed the importance of the agency's humanitarian work and has signaled a desire to resume funding following an internal investigation by UNRWA. In public statements, Biden administration officials have said it is imperative for Israel to follow through on its promise and deliver the flour shipment, which could feed more than 1.5 million Palestinians. In domestic news, in a major setback for the impeachment inquiry of Joe Biden being carried out by House Republicans, The Justice Department charged a former FBI informant with lying about the president and his son Hunter Biden's involvement in business dealings with a Ukrainian energy company. In a 37-page indictment unsealed yesterday, Alexander Smirnov is accused of falsely telling the FBI that Burisma Holdings paid Joe Biden and his son bribes worth $5 million each while Joe Biden was vice president. Smirnov was arrested in Las Vegas and faces a maximum jail term of 25 years if convicted. Smirnov's motive appears to be political. The indictment notes that in May 2020, Smirnov sent his handler a series of messages expressing bias against Biden, who was the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee at the time. And in local news, the DC area is likely to see significant snowfall overnight, and the National Weather Service has issued a winter weather advisory for most of the region. A winter storm warning was posted for western portions of Maryland and Virginia. The rate of snowfall could reach as high as 2 inches per hour in the very early hours of the morning. Weather in Washington, D.C. right now is 45 degrees and mostly cloudy. In New York City, 40 degrees with fair skies. For WPFW in Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Chris Benger.